This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. With the explosive growth of the Internet and broadband communications, we now have the potential for a truly democratic media system. But the country's powerful communications companies have other plans. In his new book, Digital Destiny, New Media and the Future of Democracy, our guest today, Jeff Chester, gets beneath the surface of media and telecommunications regulation to explain clearly how our new media system functions, what's at stake, and what we can do to fight the corporate media's plans for our digital destiny before it's too late. Chester is the executive director of the Center for Digital Democracy, a former investigative reporter and filmmaker. He has long been on the front lines fighting against the consolidation and commercialization of the U.S. media system. Jeff Chester, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you for having me. How are you today? I'm uh, well, but uh, (laughs) always uh, constantly... Uh, astounded and uh, fearful of what I follow every day as I look at the plans for our digital media system. Uh, just now, for example, I, I read in Advertising Age that uh, Yahoo's new technology uh, can follow us everywhere online, uh, wherever we go on their service, com- you know, know what we're searching, uh, compile that information, and then target us uh, you know, to get us to do things. So um, things are moving very quickly in this new media world we're creating. Now, when you say that about Yahoo, are you saying that the, the cookies they've dropped into our browsers, or is it a, is there something else going on? Is it if, Are you using a Yahoo browser? How does it get to that stage where they're following you everywhere? Well, y- Yahoo and um, m- many other companies um, online are using relatively new uh, versions of cookies, uh, technologies known as behavioral targeting. Uh-huh. And they're, they're, not only are they placing cookies uh, on you and they're an identifier, but they're now very closely following what they call your, quote-unquote, online behavior. They know what content you like and you don't like. They know exactly where your mouse is on a particular part of the page. They know whether you, whether you start or stop uh, a video or even fast-forward it. Uh-huh. And, th- and now they're taking that information not just about your behavior on one website, but something called retargeting. Uh, they're able to follow you and track you perhaps to thousands of sites or thousands of parts of a, of a big portal like uh, Yahoo. So they're compiling this tremendous amount of information about all of us, which I hope we can talk about, and, mm. and without really our consent. Well, what are they going to do with that information? I mean, what's, the, what's the plans? Well, I think we have to worry about a couple of things. Uh, one of the most powerful forces shaping the future of the digital media system is the role of, of advertising and marketing. And I should step back and say, look, the new media technology is going to be a very powerful force in our lives, and it's certainly already changing uh, the nature of, 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 of childhood and uh, of the teen years. You can see there already as young people are so accustomed to being online, using their cell phones, engaging in instant messaging. This is just the sort of the tip of the digital iceberg, to use a bad me- metaphor, the kind of changes we're going to see. We're going to be living in a world where people are always connected to digital media, and we're very powerful, interactive, multimedia technologies 
with the intelligence uh, empowered uh, to them by artificial intelligence are, are there. And it's going to be a world that is going to be incredibly attractive. Um, it's certainly going to make uh, the lives of marketers uh, much more uh, convenient. Uh, but the question is, what will it do to us in terms of our families, our communities, and our democracy? And I think if we don't sort of proactively think about this and try to do something early on to make sure that those media institutions are really there that provide information, education, news, and public affairs that reflect America's uh, diversity, that try to inform us in a variety of ways, not just sell to us, I worry that what will dominate will be very powerful media institutions um, that, in a way, serve our, the lesser parts of our nature. Hmm. So, in in getting all this information together and and storing it and and researching it, they, you know, like you say, with uh, what we're watching and where our mouse is on the on the uh, a browser page. What, what do they intend to do with all that information, or what can you see so far that they've done with it? Well, the most powerful marketing system ever developed is emerging. I, I think that is the dominant um, force shaping um, our, our electronic media system, which many people, I think, don't recognize, and that's the role that advertising and marketing is, is playing. The system that's emerging will be able to uh, track us uh, wherever we go, whether we're in front of the PC or yeah. using our cell phone and increasingly mobile devices, and even the television, which we can talk about later, is going to be fully interactive. So wherever we are, um, you know, marketers and advertisers and fairly soon politicians and others will be able to collect tremendous amounts of data about us, um, really precision uh, profiles, and then target us uh, wherever we are. Uh, you know, your cell phone might show an electronic coupon as you pass uh, a fast food restaurant or uh, some other uh, store. A, a commercial that's been designed particularly to fit your own interests uh, will show up, uh, you know, um, uh, in, in prime time. And certainly, you know, you'll be um, followed and bombarded with more ads um, uh, in front of the computer. So it's it's there to sell to yeah. us and because uh, it, it will in fact include all this, you know, information that reflects our deepest interests and desires and because it also will use the powerful multimedia technology so we'll be confronted with different variations of ourselves, animated characters that might know our favorite music, wear our favorite uh, colors, etc. It's going to drive our behavior um, in in many ways. It, it, I guess the thing that that is uh, most concerning is this the subliminal nature of all this. The sort of uh, not realizing just to what degree we have been categorized and dissected by by these uh, by this kind of technology and being kind of led into a per- certain point of view or a certain sort of the idea of a consumer society. Um, Becoming total consumers as opposed to uh, citizens of this country—that that's the thing I, I, that concerns me in all of this. Yes, and, that, and that's what concerns me. And an added element here, uh, and one reason why I am so concerned is that the advertisers and marketers—and these are really g- global trends—but I'm principally focused on right. the United States. They've advertisers have now um, embarked on an initiative to better utilize what they 
call neuroscience, brain research, in order to, in their own words, bypass our conscious minds and use the power of new media to, to go directly to our emotions. Uh, so when you combine all that, you know, powerful interactivity of digital media and the, you know, the dazzling multimedia content, the fact that it's going to be ubiquitous, it's going to be everywhere we are, that it has these profiles about us, it understands our, our behavior and might also be designed in a way to, to really, you know, um, target us in very profound and largely invisible unconscious ways. I am worried about it because that could be the most powerful force in the lives of our kids and future generations versus other... I'm not saying get rid of advertising and marketing. I'm saying we better make sure this is put into some kind of balance if we also want to have a society, you know, where, you know, uh, uh, as corny as it might sound, where, where, where love and, and family and, and, and faith and, and community and the need to build a better democracy uh, are the, the most important tasks in the, our lives. We're speaking with uh, Jeff Chester. The book is Digital Destiny. And I want to break off a small portion of what you're talking about and, and just spend a minute or two on it. Uh, during the last election, there was some discussion. And this was near the end of the uh, cycle in 2006 when there was a lot of discussion about how far along the Republicans were in terms of voter profile and the information that they had been able to discern. A lot of it coming from private businesses, uh, some of the, I'm sure some of the sources that you're describing in terms of breaking off a small part of the electorate, since it was it was seen that it was so evenly divided that duck hunters in Michigan and in certain targeted, very particular targeting of voters could have an effect on an election. And I want to note, in, in your experience, what you know about how far along, the Republicans seem to be much farther along in this technology, in this particular field than the Democrats are, and it doesn't give me a lot of comfort to know that either one of them is far, far along in this. But how much of an impact is this going to begin to have on our electoral politics? Well, I am very worried about uh, the use of all this interactive um, precision uh, data collection and advertising on the political process. Both parties yeah. and other you know, interest groups are using the same technologies that the uh, large uh, advertisers and marketers right. are, are already re- relying on. And so, you know, the question here, which is why we really need national legislation now so they can't collect this data so easily and target everybody, I said, without their consent. So, so to the idea that they know, a politician, you know, you know, knows what you watch, knows what you buy, knows the websites you go to, what your interests are, and they're able to, in fact, kind of create a, a personalized commercial for you, which mm-hmm. is really what they're working on, mm-hmm. You know, and that that may have an impact on 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 your view of that person. But the question is, you know, has that been designed really just to package you as a, a kind of mindless voter? Will that really give you a real idea of the candidate? I'm not saying the public is is so susceptible to fall for you know uh, the first interactive political ad they see, but there's no question politicians are now using these technologies. They're they're going to be able to target us with precision. Um, they'll use these multimedia approaches to work on our emotions, and I think we should be concerned about it. And, well, and I, and I guess the point is, is that this, these ad campaigns, these targeted ad campaigns, having been in politics, are not designed to illuminate a particular perspective so much as they are to, as you put it, if emotionally affect us, so that we're voting uh, based on a feeling as opposed to whether or not these their particular views are well suited to be governing us, and uh, and that that is distressing. Uh, so we're getting, we're seeing that 
And, and there's another issue related to the future of elections that I'm also concerned about, which is that we're going to continue and expand the role that big money plays in determining one's access uh, to, 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 to voters, to, to the public. You know, we, we are on the eve of a system or we're witnessing a system where, you know, there's no longer any so-called scarcity. I mean, you know, the local television stations have been able to charge um, political candidates, um, you know, literally you know, billions of dollars um, as they sell them uh, commercial time during the electoral cycle. Well, that's all that money went when there was only, you know, relatively few um, uh, television networks and, uh, you know, sm- smaller number of stations. But now, of course, we have this unlimited uh, media sphere of, of broadband and interactive television and, and mobile phone communications. But because of the decisions I think we are making, the government's making, you know, we are likely to see uh, a, the further kind of privatization of the public airwaves so that candidates that want to reach us via cell phone or reach us via uh, interactive television or even broadband may have to start paying uh, very hefty fees if they're going to be able to use that system. Now, just starting, <laughs> backtracking quite a bit now, uh, I'd like to talk about the Internet. And, and first of all, who who owns the World Wide Web? Where is, it seems that this is the... the, the uh, I'm losing a metaphor, but it's at the forefront of all this, uh, the digital revolution that we're seeing, the, the World Wide Web. Well, doesn't the public have the ownership of the web, and isn't the intrusion of, of uh, corporations on the web a little bit uh, unethical? Well, the, the, the web was designed to be a kind of open system owned by all of us. In that sense, it's a, a global resource that was created to be a kind of commons um, the problem is, you know, how do we access the web? And and also the other part of the problem was, was the web a threat to vested media interests? And there I think we get to the crux of one of the biggest problems we have, which is that the older media companies uh, that have considerable uh, political and economic clout uh, are very fearful of allowing a kind of public uh, media system to to emerge. If anybody could uh, use the web to send uh, anybody a video, it would be a threat to the cable industry, which you know makes its living controlling the kind of television most Americans receive. If anybody could use the internet and the web to send a telephone call, that would clearly be a challenge to the to the phone industry. Uh, consequently, the phone and cable industry used their political clout over the last few years to help uh, determine how we will access uh, the, the Internet in, in the future. They, uh, the phone and cable lobby got the Bush Federal Communications Commission to eliminate a key safeguard that, in essence, gives the phone and cable uh, companies the dominant position uh, when, it's, when it comes to delivering Internet. This, the, we're, we, let's go back. We can go back to old media. You were just, just talking about old media. Uh, going back to radio and television, theoretically we own radio, the radio waves and the television signals that are being sent out. These are public airwaves, and and yet, and yet, big companies have moved in, dominated it, and the idea of free access and and fairness doctrine and all that have been obliterated uh, over these last uh, couple of decades. And now we're seeing that same pattern of behavior uh, take place again with with uh, with the internet, aren't we? 
That's exactly right. And I think that the lessons of media history from the 20th century should be at the forefront of our minds as we think about the Internet and the digital media. There are a lot of people who think all we have to do is sit back and these wonderful new technologies, the genie's out of the bottle, there'll always be this great diversity, they'll always be able to get my, 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 my voice and perspective heard on a YouTube or something like that. I'm not so sure, and I think we need to hedge our digital bets, so to speak, as with radio and with broadcast television as with, and with cable. The proponents of those communications technologies promised the public yeah. that they would, in fact, serve the public interest. They'd be educational, non-commercial, community programs. Cable promised that there would be uh, channels owned by people of color and women, uh, you know, uh, tr- ad- addressing uh, the still uh, out- out- outrageous um, uh, uh, absence of, of diverse ownership in the United States. Well, all those promises were broken once they got um, whatever they wanted out of Congress. So once again, tremendous promises are being made by the phone and cable and other giants that the Internet uh, will, will serve a democracy. But I think, uh, as, I, as you said, we should pay attention to the lessons of media history. Um, it may not be our public airwaves uh, in terms of the Internet unless we create some policies and strategies to ensure we have some control over them. We're speaking with Jeff Chester. The book is Digital Destiny and uh, New Media and the Future of Democracy. Yeah, I was wondering, too, as far as the Internet goes, Verizon, AT&T, Comcast, and Bell South, they want to get together and create a privately run pay-as-you-go Internet. Do you see that this is going to happen? Is this, is this a plan of theirs uh, going to succeed? Well, they've, the phone and cable companies have been in- Incredibly successful in getting their, you know, agenda through uh, Washington. I mean, both parties are, are more or less under the influence of the media and telecommunications lobby. I mean, that's why we haven't gotten very much out of the public interest over all these decades when it comes to radio and, and television and, and cable television. So, yeah, the phone and cable industry, you know, have been so alarmed about the emergence of the Internet and broadband, um, you know, really fearful that a kind of open system would, um, you know, create forces that would ultimately, you know, diminish their their businesses, that they use their political clout, as I said, to get the Bush FCC um, to, in essence, turn over the future of the broadband Internet to, to them. We're really talking about a handful of companies, AT&T, which just bought Bell South. AT&T used to be SBC. So you have AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, and Time Warner. They're really the big four uh, in control of the, of the cable and the telephone industry in the United States today. And they now have ended something uh, which is known as, quote-unquote, network neutrality. Uh, up until uh, their successful lobbying, uh, which was completed in 2005, there were federal commission, communications commission rules that required the Internet, uh, when it came to us in, in, in our homes, to be operated in a kind of open, and the term they use, non-discriminatory manner. The, the company that connected you to the Internet could not determine the kind of content uh, that flowed over the those wires, and, and it couldn't determine the business model uh, that affected that, that content. That's why people could go to a garage, you know, and start a, a, a Yahoo, you know, or, or an Amazon or a Google. Well, those days are sadly over. The phone and cable companies want to create a kind of private 
two-tiered Internet, uh, those content companies that can afford to pay them uh, high fees will come into our homes, our PCs and our TVs on a fast lane, and everybody else uh, presumably will have to um, uh, be satisfied with the, the slower digital dirt road. This is the thing. I'm going to go, just sort of a, in a macro perspective here. These companies have a fiduciary responsibility to mac- maximize profit. It is not in their interest to provide a forum sort of for public debate, a public forum, if you will. So this is always going to be the tension. We're always going to be battling this. I guess my question is, without the leadership in Washington, how are we going to impose something approximating a open and open and public forum that we're entitled to because we as taxpayers built the internet initially it is it should be ours it should remain ours how are we going to do something to prevent this from getting worse and and i think uh u.s consumers have paid for the internet several times over i mean the phone and cable companies say they need to have this plan where they can charge all this extra money um because they're building us the high speed um, you know, uh, communications network. Well, uh, hello, as my 14-year-old would say. I mean, I think people should look at their phone and yeah. cable bills and their cell phone bills, you know, and their high-speed Internet bills and say, how many years have I been paying for this? In fact, we've paid for it several times mm-hmm. over. I, look, I think we need to have multiple strategies here uh, about the future of the Internet and its role in, in a democratic society. On the one hand, we need to press members of Congress, even the Democrats, uh, some of the well-meaning ones, they're not pushing the envelope here. Um, you know, we they need to lead an effort to make sure that there's, uh, you know, that not only is this idea of neutrality restored, uh, preventing the phone cable companies from creating this kind of uh, pay-as-you-go digital toll road, but we have to make sure that a significant amount of that space uh, for democracy, for civic participation, is 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 there and is open to all, and you know it's it, and is a, and can be um, accessed wherever via your cell phone or your TV or your 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 PC. Because I think one of the concerns that I have is people are thinking about broadband just in terms of their computer. Well, very soon broadband will mean your cell phone, and people will be making political decisions via that cell phone. And who controls that cell phone? They call it the deck. Will, will greatly determine, you know, what's possible and not possible in terms of political discourse and and, and as well as economic uh, competition. Television is going to be internet-like, and that's right now considered a kind of private medium. The phone industry really wants to take over the future of television along with the cable industry. It's what's really why they're lobbying so much. Well, that's going to be the Internet. Will we have open space there? So we have to press our members of Congress to push for a kind of, you know, democratic digital, you know, uh, bill of rights uh, for the public. At the same time, I think we can't count on our political leaders uh, coming to our rescue anytime soon so that we I, people concerned about the future of the media in the United States have to, you know, create, I think, their own um, counter-strategy to what I think will be a, a relatively commercial and consolidated um, high-speed Internet space. We, we, I thought we had sort of uh, we'd beaten back the idea of consolidation of media, the joint ownership of radio and television in certain markets. That had sort of been stopped. And I was under the impression that the net neutrality uh, was essentially 
we were winning that battle because there had been such a public outcry about the loss, the potential loss of it. Am I mistaken? Well, what in, in terms of network neutrality, what happened was, you know, it, the, the the proposed legislation that the Republicans would have passed that would have uh, changed some of the communications laws in the United States and would have allowed them to have greater control over, uh, you know, uh, television in particular. That legislation was stopped in the last Congress. But right now, it is unlikely that the Congress, including the Democratic leaders, will stand up and certainly, you know, have enough political support to pass legislation restoring network neutrality. Uh, Right now, you know, the phone and cable companies are so powerful and will soon be coming into an election year where these, you know, politicians will want that money. Yeah. Um, that um, network neutrality um, is, is unlikely uh, in, in, in this Congress, I, I, I fear. In addition, network neutrality alone is not a magic bullet. Mm-hmm. Just by having a, 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 you know, an open Internet doesn't mean, I think, that the, the, the forces promoting um, democracy, civic discourse, you know, non-commercial expression, doesn't mean that that content will, you know, um, not be also marginalized unless we do something uh, about it uh, as as well. I, you know, I, once again, the most powerful forces, the forces that will have the money to make sure that um, they're in the foreground, are you know are the you know, the, the big advertisers and and the, and the big brands. And so I am worried that in the absence of kind of public policy, uh, you know, content that can do something more than just sell, uh, you know, won't be. Um, as uh, as visible, the Federal Communications Commission is also still working on um, a proposal that would allow even fewer owners of so-called old media. So you know, right now, it's I think it's a very important transition uh, moment here where we have to keep our eye both in Washington, but also look at the market itself and figure out are there public interest strategies that can take advantage of these changes. Um, so that we don't have a completely privatized and fully commercialized uh, interactive media system in the near future. You're, you're so right. Um, we, we have to take this upon ourselves. I, the politicians are raising money from media companies to spend money on commercials on those media companies. It's a distressing cycle. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I want to thank you very much for being here. Where's the uh, best place for people <clears throat> to go if they want to know more about this? Demic, well, I have... We, I, we have a website, democraticmedia.org, and on that okay. site, you, there's an article there about um, the commercial media sector and the changes with Web 2.0, which we didn't have time to talk about. Mm-hmm. I do think there's, advan- there's an opportunity now and necessity for people concerned about the public interest to intervene in the commercial market. Very good. Jeff Chester, thank you. Uh, the uh, executive director of Center for Digital Democracy, the book is Digital Destiny, New Media and the Future of Democracy. Thank you for being on Weekly Signals. Thank you very much. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.